Come on, Jimmy. Who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government... Hi Tim, thanks for being with us today. So you're here to talk to us about light. And, and dark. And dark. They go together. They go together, yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to start with an anecdote now. When my wife, well she wasn't my wife at the time, but uh, she visited me in the county Kerry and um, we decided to go to the pub one night. Mm. And uh, one of the first things that uh, uh, that I noticed was that my wife could not see in the dark as well as I did. Because where I am from <laughs> Kerry is really, really dark. And uh, I could quite quite make out the sides of the roads kind of down a narrow country lane. She couldn't. And it just made me think. It made me think that why is that the case? Why is two people's per- experience of light different? I mean, that kind of made me start thinking about Aristotle. Mm. And he says at the start of the metaphysics that um, the origin of philosophy, the origin of thinking is uh, wonderment and astonishment. To begin with, I mean, is... Uh, is light is that the condition of all of all things light is that is that is that a fundamental question is that uh something so ubiquitous that it uh that that we we forget about it sometimes of course it is and no light no earth no life on earth so it's very clear that light is fundamental to our kind of existence although it has to be said that recent research has shown that there are certain organisms at the bottom of the darkest sea that they'll actually reproduce without any light whatsoever. But they're the exception rather than the rule. In terms of forgetting about light, it's something that we don't really think about it, yet it is really, really omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's Of course it is. It's everywhere. And, and we are sighted beings. <clears throat> we have a particular ocular apparatus that allows us to discern the world in particular ways. To see with light... Uh, is the way that I put it. And what's kind of really interesting about that is to speculate, because we can never really be sure, although we might be able to kind of work out what the visual apparatus of other creatures is, is that we see with light in a very, very particular way. We can see certain uh, um, colours on the spectrum. Uh, we can not see very far away, for instance. But actually, to go back to your anecdote, we can see quite well compared to other mammals in the darkness. So it, this is kind of... It's kind of interesting, that that idea that we see in a very particular way. And, of course, we don't think about that because light or seeing with light is part of our everyday condition. Now, the problem I felt, I've found, certainly since I've been working on light, is that in my own discipline, geography, not only might this be light be over light and darkness be overlooked as part of a kind of an everyday sort of human experience, but it's also been vastly overlooked in scholarly research. And if you think about this, this is particularly odd in geography because geographers are concerned, above all, I would say, with place, space, and landscape. And if we think about these, these, all these kind of elements, especially if we kind of focus on the latter landscape, it's kind of fairly evident that we, ex- we, we can only experience landscape with light. In other words, the distinctive kind of light that falls upon the landscape the ways in which it circulate the ways in which light circulates through our eyes 
the ways in which light falls upon distinctive elements within the landscape. So light reflects off different materialities in very different ways. And then also the, the final thing, the ways in which we make sense of it. So we, we all, always bear in mind that our sen- senses are culturally conditioned. We can't see in some, some, the, the senses don't provide some sort of unmediated access to the kind of reality of the world, but we always interpret what we see. And so going back to the point that I was making about geography is there is very, there's nothing, there is no, and this sounds almost incredible, but in the kind of history of Anglo-American geography, there appears to be no, any nothing significant that I could find, analyses of light and dark, no theories of how light and dark shape landscape, place and space. And that is quite profoundly weird. That begs the question then uh, about, how how do how do I mean how what's your method here? How do you think about the sociology of light, the culture of light? I mean specifically, you're a reader in cultural geography mm. um, at uh, Manchester Metropolitan University and at uh, Melbourne. Mm. But that's such an interesting question. How does one think about the geography of light? I mean, it's, I can't answer that in a simple. Uh, there isn't one simple method to talk about here. You can only look at it through kind of multifaceted sources. So, for instance, one of the things that we might do is to sort of engage in an autoethnographic approach. And so in the more recent research, that's what I've been doing. I've been looking, I went for a walk in the Peak District on a, an area called Stanton Moor. So by autoethnography, you mean kind of like psychogeography? No, no, I mean, my. I'm, what I mean is autoethnography is the geography of my, the uh, an ethnography that uses myself I understand. as the focus rather than looking at other people to think of myself as a, as a subject in the world that experiences the world in particular ways. And so in, in this sense, I've been thinking about light for, for a while. And so I'm quite attuned to see, to noting its effects. And of course, if you think about it, when you're in the open air and you're walking around in the daylight, you continually attune to different levels, different intensities of light, all the ways in which light inflects the landscape or the space that you're in, in particular ways. And this is at an unconscious level, I guess. Of course, it's nearly always at an unconscious level. But so what I tried to do was to kind of attune myself to the extent that I could be conscious of what I was seeing. And of course, any kind of autoethnographic experiment like that... it, no matter how kind of you, you try, you attempt to be kind of aware and pay attention to light. Most of the time, nevertheless, you're still kind of it's still kind of unconsciously conditioned in the way you apprehend space. And so, what I tried to do was to take a photograph at those particular moments that seemed to stand out when light made a difference, drew my attention to different elements of the landscape, whether they were near or far. And so there were certain kind of obvious things that I'd be walking along and there would be a little puddle and the light, the sun would be shining in that puddle. And suddenly you kind of step back and you notice it. Or, for instance, uh, you know, I'd, I'd emerge out of a wood and there was a vast skyscape there with this play of light across a great, a great kind of area, a large area of kind of moorland and mountain. Uh, so particular moments kind of drew uh, drew my attention and I, so I tried to record those by means of photography and then think after the event select the kind of key moments look at the photographs again and think about how I felt and how I responded 
and how it impelled me to kind of move or to consider uh, something or to or to simply kind of enjoy the spectacle. And and that gives you a geography of light, then you think? It's one geography. A geography of light has to be kind of multifaceted. So so that's one one aspect of it would be an autoethnographic approach. The, we all, we're all kind of we all experience light. And we all we we all perceive the world with light, uh, and so uh, there's no reason not to consider the ways in which light uh, in, interacts with our own selves, and to speculate, and to to uh, focus on that. Uh, but of course, that's only one way. So one other way that I've that I've um, explored it ethnographically is to carry out participant observation at light festivals. Now there's an abundance of light festivals uh, these days. Nearly every every part of the world seems to have light a light festival? festival. Light festival, a festival of illumination. Okay. A festival that uses illumination, and these are kind of proliferating at all different scales. So there are kind of really grand uh, occasions, such as the, I mean the most the best known one is La Fête des Lumières in Lyon, which occurs four nights every December, and four million people go to see this. So we're talking about really huge scale. Here, on the other hand, there are lots of little local lantern parades that have been established over the last sort of ten, twenty years, uh, and these also, of course, you know, they re-enchant the night. And so, one of the things that that we might look at then, if we're carrying out a sort of participant observation, an ethnographic study of a light festival, is to notice the ways in which it, people's behaviour is transformed, how the atmosphere of a place, which is a very difficult thing to get at an atmosphere, but nevertheless, we all know it exists. If we go to a football match, we know there's an atmosphere, but to actually grasp what it is, is a difficult thing. But maybe we need a certain thick description to capture what's happening here. So when you say we, thick description, that's Clifford Goethe's kind yes, of... Yes, exactly, of yeah, yeah. A rich sociological kind. Exactly. So that, that a rich description that also that also encompasses uh, a, a description that involves space as well, that focuses on how space is transformed through light, and then also how people respond to that and what they do to produce the light, uh, and how at certain points of let's say a lantern parade, the atmosphere or, or the kind of ambience becomes charged with a particular kind of energy. For instance, as people pass underneath a dark bridge holding their lanterns and start to chant or sing. So, um, and the way in which light always interacts with darkness. So we can think about the different ways in which certain light, certain light installations can be particularly effective when it stands out against darkness. So it's an ongoing thick description of what's going on. Uh, and 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 that's one other kind of ethnographic technique that you might use to identify geography of light and dark. I'm fascinated to know what changes did you observe in in people in in response to light. The, well, there's two different uh, light festivals that I've particularly focused on. One is moon raking in Slawit, which is a small Yorkshire village, and that's a small lantern parade that takes place every two years. Um, and it's based on a fantastic local myth that I think is a kind of an invented myth, really, which I can't go into here because it's too detailed. But every year, maybe 400 people create lanterns of various shapes, always according to a particular theme. So the last one that I attended, the theme was landmarks. And so the lantern festival, the lanterns that were created resemble things like the Taj Mahal and the Angel of the North, <laughs> Statue of Liberty. So it's a profoundly surreal experience to see the Statue of Liberty in lantern form, along with all these other landmarks bobbing through the night as it makes its way. So and people get very excited about it. Um, and so here what happens is that what's kind of interesting is to, is to think about how 
the the parade is is kind of charged by the light and how the energy of the parade the different kind of atmospheres of the parade shift as they make their way along a particular route so i've already mentioned they might go under a dark bridge and that creates a particular sonic atmosphere that combines with the light, the special power of the light in a gloomy realm to kind of charge it with a particular atmosphere. And then they emerge out of the, of the uh, from under the bridge and then they enter a street where there's lots of people at the side of the road who are shouting and cheering them and commenting on the quality of the lanterns and the amusing designs that they've wow. made. And then there'll be, there'll be little bits where a band strikes up. So you can see there's this kind of flow of atmosphere that shifts all the time. Light isn't the only ingredient in it, but it's a critical element in transforming the experience of what are usually kind of mundane uh, streets at night with not many people in them. What it reminds me of, what you just spoke about there, is the the- it has a sense of the theatrical. <laughs> and, I mean, if you think of the average theatre production, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's hugely important is, is, is hundreds and hundreds of light cues Absolutely. I mean, theatre is really, really important here. Obviously, you're quite right. And the theatre might be understood, especially in the sort of 19th and 20th century, as a new kind of space, much like the cinema, where light uh, has this kind of theatrical quality that transforms the experience of being in a confined dark space. So there's a really interesting things we could say about that. The second festival that I've looked at quite a lot, and perhaps my favourite, is one that is often kind of quite vilified in the media and by snobby people, and that is Blackpool Illuminations, which I'm a devotee of. <laughs> I make no apologies for that. You visit every year. I love it. I love it. And what's so fascinating about Blackpool Illuminations is it's largely immune to the tastemakers. People aren't really concerned with like reproducing sophisticated... Uh, um, so you're talking uh, about my tastemakers, Tim, you mean gatekeepers? I mean gatekeepers, I mean light, I mean sort of light designers, I mean city marketers, I mean festival organisers, uh, and I mean middle class people who kind of identify and judge uh, perpetually. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute, but I want to say something about Christmas lights. So what's interesting about Blackpool is it's a tradition that's lasted a hundred years or so now. Uh, and as I say, it's not really concerned with producing sophisticated or or what might be regarded as kind of artistic light, although I think it certainly is. And it's it's definitively Blackpool, so the lights have to conform to a particular aesthetic that have been kind of, that have been kind of curated over the last hundred years. And by that I mean they have to be colourful, they have to be animated, they often have to kind of refer to elements of popular culture that's very dynamic and shifts all the time. But they also have to have elements of tradition. uh, Because most of the people who go to Blackpool Illuminations go year on year. Something like three million people go each year over the two months that they're held. And and what I want to say about that is that what's very important about the Illuminations is that because people go... It's almost become like a family tradition. So they tend to go in kind of large family groups. Uh, You know, their grandmother took them. And so then now their grandparents, they take their grandkids. And there's a kind of deep attachment to place there. And they walk along the promenade, the four miles of the promenade that is kind of illuminated. Uh, And what's interesting about it is that they've anticipated this moment. They've come from maybe Preston or, or Manchester Bolton and they arrive on the coach and they get out and they're very they're already kind of keyed up they're already anticipating they're already excited and so the the atmosphere is produced by the lights but also the people and their response to the lights and their anticipation and their excitement so we, we have to think about this kind of illuminated scene as something that's kind of constituted both by the lights the back cloth of the of the North Sea of the Irish Sea that uh, stands against them and makes 
makes them particularly effective by the noise of the arcades by the smell of fish and chips and by the kind of uh, the kind of animated practices of the people who consume them and who love them so much from your research how does light connect to mood you mentioned atmosphere mm, you know mm, mm, atmosphere is the thing you say that we mm, it's there but we never know how to articulate mm, it but uh, you know you know if you go into a pub, you know, where you're not welcome, you get a, have, you'll have pick up on the bad vibes, as we say, you know. Uh, sometimes you might enter into, I don't know, a Christmas market or something mm-hmm. like that, and there's a festive, jolly atmosphere. How is light generating the mood? Okay, I mean, it's, it's, it's really important, this, isn't it? And the, and the thing is, of course, this is also always, always already cultural the ways in which mood is conditioned. So there might be people who go to Blackpool, uh, uh, you know, people who, who are completely unused to such kinds of festive atmospheres, and they might go they might go there and they might feel deeply alienated by it. And m- moreover, they might find the lights glaring and ugly and flashing and headachey. Uh, and you often hear people talk about fairgrounds in this way, people who aren't used to, who don't like fairgrounds, they go to a fairground with all the flashing lights and the noises and they're kind of freaked out by it. So mood is... is, is, is it, it shifts and it, and it varies between people. Uh, but there are many examples of the ways in which partic- people say that particular colours... Uh, uh, produce particular kinds of mood and I, I, what I'll do is I'll give you two examples first of all we might one of the kind of most uh, um, renowned conditions through a lack of light is seasonal affective disorder and this right. particularly persists in the kind of you know the 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 northern uh, parts of Europe and Nordic areas where there's very little sunlight uh, over uh, large periods of the year over the winter the long winter and people get depressed I mean, this is this is a kind of medical condition. People get depressed. You can buy therapeutic lights, can't you? Well, and now, yes. And so now what's kind of interesting is that schools and workplaces are being installed with lights that mimic the quality of sunlight. So the, the, the similar kinds of radiance and tone and so forth. And they reckon this is, you know, having a greater impact in preventing this kind of seasonal affective disorder. The other example I wanted to give you was that... Um, the, the work that I did on light first started, and I'll say more about this in a minute, uh, and to go back to the issues of kind of taste and class, uh, it first started when I was looking at Christmas light householders, uh, at householders, working class householders in Manchester and Sheffield who put up Christmas decorations, Christmas lights Can on I the just... outside of the house. Before you go on, Tim, uh, I am aware of an expression in uh, Manchester, which is clearly a class-based expression. And I mean, this is really interesting to me that, that you can actually think all of a sudden, you can yeah. think about light yeah, and class, right? But I think there is an expression, I'm not sure if it's restricted to Manchester or Northern England, but it's, uh, you know, they say someone's face lit up like a council uh, house at Christmas. Yes, yes. And I'm going to come on to that. Uh, another way in which this is another expression to capture these Christmas lights that people put on the outside of the house is to call it chav bling. So I shall, I'll come on to that in a minute. Uh, but anyway, I, but before I do that, I just wanted to say this thing about mood is that, so the, if you look at any of these houses, you'll see that they're kind of multicolored, uh, they're, they're animated. They fit again, a bit like Blackpool. They they uh, feature uh, figures from popular culture, Homer Simpson, uh, Santa Claus, for instance. Uh, but also, the, if we think about what colours predominate, it'll be red, green and gold, the colours of Christmas. OK, that's what Christmas lights are supposed to be. They think that's what they try to create. Uh, and as I was do- when I, we were doing the research, the householders complained about how they'd been into Man- the centre of Manchester 
to uh, see the Christmas lights that are installed each year in most cities, as in most cities, uh, to attract shoppers during the kind of Christmas period. So the Christmas lights get switched on. And most of them are lamented, but they're all white and blue. These are not Christmas lights. They don't produce the mood of Christmas. They don't solicit a f- festive mood at all. Uh, and so, and in some ways, they were kind of right. These were kind of cool, trendy, sophisticated, supposedly sophisticated lights that were meant to make the city look kind of edgy and cool, but they didn't make the city feel Christmassy, which was kind of quite critical. So in addition to that, then, uh, how light affects mood... Do you think then it also affects our reception of our understanding of class? Uh, I mean, enormously so. And I, I mean, there's there's many examples of this. I've already mentioned that Blackpool is often uh, sneered at by middle class commentators. They always use the term tacky. And this really, the thing that started me off being interested in light was to look at these Christmas, uh, uh, Christmas. these people who put Christmas lights on the, on the outside of the houses, almost exclusively working class families in, in Manchester and Sheffield. And you, would, you could always find them. Like, in, for instance, in Withenshaw, there's a host of these uh, installations. And what was really interesting about this is that we went to uh, interview the householders and they were very community-spirited people. Uh, they said that we wanted to put the lights up to, to generate a sense of festivity in the neighbourhood, to please the local kids, to kind of generate a kind of community feeling. Uh, and so some of them, you, we would often find that some of them wanted to stop doing it because it's very onerous, cladding the outside of your house with these Christmas lights. Uh, but they felt an obligation, a social obligation. People would come up and say, when are you putting your Christmas lights up? And so they felt then obliged to kind of uh, carry out this kind of thing that they'd started. And, and so this is what they were like. And then after interviewing them, we went online. And we we thought, you know, what what will we find? What what do people say about this uh, about these Christmas lights? And what we found was a deluge of hate. People complaining about, you know. So there were all sorts of kind of expressions like these fucking tasteless chavs who put uh, Christmas lights on the outside of the house. Pete, they don't care about the environment. They, but above all, the most important point that they reiterated over and over again is that these chavs, these working class people. Who they often assumed would be kind of, I mean, all sorts of crazy, unemployed for years, you know, benefit cheats, scroungers, had loads of kids. It was kind of bizarre what they inferred from these Christmas lights. It? it was extraordinary. We couldn't understand it. But, the, but of course, the, 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 uh, the, the greatest crime, I think, was that they lacked taste. So the idea of being tasteless is a kind of a new middle-class configuration. And you can see it in all these kind of lifestyle programs about how to decorate your house and how to make your garden nice and what to wear, what not to wear, all these ideas. These tastemakers, these kind of middle-class tastemakers, through the media, kind of articulate that taste is an absolutely kind of integral uh, quality and a quality that bestows status upon a person. And so this was a kind of way of make, marking these middle-class commentators. Bordeaux's point, isn't it? Discriminating. Yeah, yeah. Does you have social capital from those who don't? Absolutely, yeah. And what's kind of interesting about it was the mismatch. You know, we, we talked to the to the householders about how, how what people were saying. And they were, they were, honestly, they were completely mystified. They thought it was kind of absurd. And they laughed about it. They said, oh, they just don't understand. They haven't got any Christmas spirit, these people. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a comical thing, but it kind of revealed the ways in which class is often kind of articulated. I wonder, I wonder, and this is just an aside, Tim, I wonder, one of the key indicators of whether you voted for Brexit or against Brexit mm. was um, 
having a college degree. I wonder, is there a work to be done on seeing is whether a key indicator of Brexit is whether you decorate your uh, the front of your house at Christmas or not? <laughs> I think so. I think we need. I think with those those sort of tastes and those attitudes of those people needs to be more rather than sort of slagging people off yes, who voted for Brexit. Whatever, what's, the, yeah. what's the point? I mean, the, it needs to be understood. We need to understand where those kind of attitudes are coming from. And often, you know, I think these people are for, forced into a corner. They're defensive. They're kind of assailed not only by kind of, you know, you know, government agencies and so forth. They they kind of feel as though they, they've been marginalised. And, and in, in contradistinction, wrongly, to, to migrants, I think they feel that. But also they're assailed because of the kind of, you know, the very identities, the things they wear, the music they listen to, the holidays that they go on, the uh, the the way they decorate their houses. Yeah. And so I can't, you can see how there's this kind of embattled element of the population that maybe strikes out in, in unpredictable ways. That makes me think then, though, what you're saying to then, and this is probably going to be more <coughs> intuitive to, to everybody, but what you've been talking about there is... What's really interesting with what what you're saying is that you're you're sort of helping us think about light in ways that we haven't. But I guess one way that we've thought about light is, uh, in a moral sense, you said there that sort of people who illuminate, who are interested in the black pool of illuminations, mm-hmm. or who decorated their house at Christmas, were were talking about it. Uh, we're doing it in a moral sense. It was good for their community. It was good for their children. It was good for their futures. So that mythic dimension of light is that something you've 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 got any thoughts on the idea that you know light is associated with good. Dark is associated with bad, you know, light is oh, associated wow. with justice and regeneration, you know. Once I was blind, now I can see, as the Bible says, you know, and all this. I mean, there's a lot to say there. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think that um, this is really interesting to think about how darkness has become produced. Over the last two millennia, I think, as as a as a condition that is conducive to kind of evil, to danger, to sort of sinister and nefarious goings-on, and light is that which kind of reveals, uh, which is honest to goodness, uh, which is kind of... uh, Darkness is inimical to the pursuit of scientific truth, whereas lightness, whereas light enables it. There's a caveat that I have to make here, which is that this isn't always the case. Uh, And so while these might be majoritarian understandings of light and dark... It hasn't always been the case. But let's start with uh, with darkness and the way that it's been conceived. And I think we have to understand that uh, in, in an era before widespread lighting, when people had these paltry tallow candles that briefly flickered into life for a few brief moments before they went out, in medieval villages, for instance, and, and before that, people were well acquainted with darkness. Uh, and in an era of sort of widespread religious belief, and and also combined with widespread superstition, people would would see these kind of malign entities in the dark. They would imagine shadowy forms uh, that were were potentially threatening. And that's not to mention that actually life uh, after darkness, going out in a kind of medieval town, would have been hazardous. You know, there'd be ditches full of excrement. Um, you know, overhang, overhanging timbers, slippery patches. It would have been perilous. You couldn't see where you were going. Uh, not to mention there might have been, you know, footpads and, and uh, you know... Uh, brigands. Brigands and thieves around the place. Yeah, so people were scared of the dark. Not everybody, but people were frightened of the dark, and so they would lock themselves in, they would shut themselves in, they'd go to bed quite early, you know, when the dark, when, when nightfall uh, occurred, 
And of course, then, this, these nights were full of all these superstitious and mythic elements. You know, witches, elves, hobgoblins, ghosts, all sorts of kind of phantom creatures that flit through, flitted through space. And they, you know, they'd be in their bed and they'd be kind of imagining these sorts of things. And then I think this is compounded by by Christianity. I, I, I'm not going to let Christianity off the hook here, although it's more complicated than this, as I'll say. But Christianity, of course, as you've said, is suffused with metaphors about light overcoming darkness. First of all, there was dark in Genesis, there was darkness, and then, then there was light, and God created the world. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. And so there are all these kind of notions that uh, that darkness is the realm of Satan, and his and his evil hordes, and lightness is the realm of Christ and God, uh, and these, of course, are, are, are absolutely compound these kind of these superstitious beliefs as well. So it becomes very powerful, and then what? Then it further kind of advances the notion that darkness is malign and light is good is the coming of the enlightenment and so rational thought then uh, that light can be shed on things it can be shed on ignorance that light will enable the pursuit of knowledge and indeed is a metaphor for the pursuit of knowledge uh, and we're not going to be left in the dark ages anymore with dark thoughts uh, an obscure understanding of the world things will be revealed in their full yeah, knowledge the, the enlightenment is Casting out the dark forces of irrationality. Absolutely, absolutely. This is kind of really important, I think. And so, where we are now is we're kind of we 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 live in this legacy. We live in this kind of Christian or post-Christian, post-enlightenment, post-superstition legacy, in which darkness has been kind of construed as this kind of, you know, evidently kind of malign uh, condition. Uh, and I think people are starting to question that. Now, I just want to make two ca the caveats that I wanted to make is that first of all. Uh, Christians throughout many ages, usually kind of small sects, have sought out caves and places of darkness in which they can contemplate and experience the mystery of God in profound ways without being distracted by sight, by things that by the visible elements of the world. Uh, and so that also exists. And then also um, in in uh, sort of medieval Ireland. And to solicit the kind of imaginations of, of would-be poets, uh, young men were put into dark cells. And it was thought that by putting them into these kind of dark cells, uh, these would be the conditions under which their imaginations would be allowed to roam free, without again, without these kind of visual distractions. And then when they came out, they'd be highly attuned to what it was that they saw after being visually deprived for so long. That is interesting, and that, that seems to make sense to me, because if you think of sort of the romantic rejection of the Enlightenment in, in poets and artists and things like that, what, what we're getting is a, a kind of a rejection of this, mm. of, this, of this idea that light is salvation. In some sense, that, you know, you have, you have your Byrons and your Wordsworths and your Shelleys, <laughs> and they're saying that we need to actually turn to the darker side of humanity and, and acknowledge that as part of us. Yes, and and it's also worth mentioning that there were also many people who made their living at night, you know, bakers and so forth, had to get out to kind of, you know, brew and, and you know, then later on postmen. Fishermen, yeah. Fishermen, all these, all these sorts of people. I mean, they had no choice in the matter. And, of course, darkness was also a kind of a, a, a very fertile time in which to escape <clears throat> the oppressive gaze of overlords and masters. 
Mm. So revolutionary kind of activities uh, could take place under cover of darkness. And you kind of think about the kind of levelers uh, and, and all these kind, you know, in, in sort of medieval Britain again, these these figures who kind of accumulated at night and kind of, you know, could attack uh, the forces of power unseen. And so this was kind of important. Uh, beatniks, witches, uh, all sorts of de- denizens of the night have have kind of held sway as well, and maybe done kind of creative and interesting and revolutionary. I mean, uh, that's that's the thesis of Jacques Rancière, the French philosopher, in his book The Knights of Labour. The yeah. idea that you know people after after a hard day's work, etc., mm-hmm. they get tired, but then that becomes a, a, a it's it's it, that becomes a moment when they can create of alternative paths, alternative identities, alternative stories. Yes, well, what's really interesting here is that, that, and this is such a fascinating thing, is that in uh, medieval times when everything was dark, I already mentioned people went to bed early, but people would have two sleeps. People would have this first sleep and then they would wake up in the middle of the night and they would be awake for like two, three, maybe four hours before lapsing into a second sleep, a shorter, uh, lighter sleep, and then they would get up. But during those three or four hours, all sorts of things took place. Obviously, people had sex, but they also told stories. They maybe did the housework. They perhaps prayed. So there was this fertile time in the middle of the night, this social sort of uh, occasion when people had nothing to do. They couldn't uh, necessarily do any work. So they would wake up and there were these there were these kind of storytellings and these kind of conversations and these kind of intimate kind of moments that would take place in the middle of the night. Everything's completely dark. Uh, and, and of course, we don't... And very oddly, since the, the advent of electric light, we sleep for eight hours or seven hours straight through. If we go back to trying to sleep under conditions of complete darkness, we devolve back again into that pattern of first and second sleep, which is kind of interesting. That is that is that is uh, that is uh, so interesting. That is so interesting. I mentioned sort of the romantic poets there, but there's yeah. also sort of the romantic artists, as you know, there's your constables, there's your turners, all of these. Yeah, things. yeah. Is that something that you looked into art- artistic representations of light when you were doing your research on this topic? Uh, well, it's in, in, in many ways. So not so much painting, though, of course, if we think about kind of Turner, uh, we note that he was the kind of uh, the painter of light, called the painter of light, and Constable as well, e- endeavoured to capture uh, a multiplicity of cl- cloud effects in, in single locations, maybe making 40 paintings of the cloud. He was kind of obsessed with the movements of the clouds and the effects of the light. Uh, and so these are painters who, we think about landscape painting, you know, we, we can go back to people like Caravaggio. We can see how they play continuously with kind of light and dark. We might even say that kind of landscape painting is a representation of the endless play of light and dark. And this becomes more kind of obvious during the time of the Impressionists, where the the endeavour is to capture movement and light at any one time, but also the way in which that shifts continuously as well. So rather than rendering, let's say, a particular static notion of what a scene looks like at any one moment in terms of the play in light and dark, the Impressionist attempted to show this kind of dynamism, this kind of dynamic interplay of light and dark that endlessly shifts and changed uh, with all sorts in, in all sorts of different ways. But so, but what I've really, uh, who really influenced me, the artists that really inf- influenced me were three, three particular artists that I want to mention. Uh, the first of all, the majestic uh, American light artist, James Turrell, who has created the most kind of profound uh, engagements with artificial light, but also particularly daylight. 
and so if you go into one of his installations, he has these sky spaces. You'll go into a chamber, and there's a very thin aperture cut in the roof that's open to the sky. Uh, and because of the way this is devised, you become almost fixated on the quality of the changing light in this in this sky space the actual light that exists out there. So you isolate the light. You see it in this small area, this small square or circle, and you focus on it. You look at the colour of it. You look at its luminosity, its intensity, and you become aware of how dynamic light is, how it shifts all the time. And so what we were saying at the start about how, how do we kind of notice light, well, usually we don't when we're out in the world, but James Turrell makes us attend to light in its kind of dynamic... And, and, and it, it becomes almost like a solid entity. You focus on it and in addition to this you become aware of your own perception of the ways in which you see that light that leads me to ask you then and i mean i think you've alluded to this already when you're talking about those sort of interregnum periods between light and dark i'm wondering what are your thoughts on uh, the more sort of liminal notions of light those stages between light and dark well there's many different types of twilight on there are four official stages for instance uh, nautical twilight i can't remember them all but um the vampires. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, things come out, things start to assume form when things become a bit shadowy. And then, of course, all is eclipsed when we enter kind of true darkness or, or, or greater darkness. But, if, but what's interesting here, of course, is that there is no absolute dark or there's very rarely any absolute dark and neither is there any absolute light. Uh, and if we think about kind of even on the brightest day, the things that might stand out the most are the strong shadows. That's certainly the case in Australia where I've been, where the luminosity of the light is so profound that shadows are much harder edged and much denser than they are in, in sort of northern Europe anyway. Uh, and so so light and dark always coexist in interesting and judicious ways. Uh, and so it's quite right. I mean, you know, there are there are area there are times when things are gloomy, when they subside into greater gloom, when things become indistinct and then they become black. And these are kind of really interesting, these kind of shifting qualities and the ways in which the kind of relationship between light and dark endlessly kind of changes. Yeah, so you're kind of talking about the historicality of light there as well. I mean, that seems to be what you're saying mm. to me, Tim, I think, mm. that, that that the light is a diverse, vibrant, sort of a live mm. phenomenon. Mm. And we don't, we've sort of probably thought about it too much in sort of a very sort of homogenous way, but you're trying to bring nuance. Absolutely. And then, and so the thing about this, though, is that, is that, that yes, that's that might be the way that we experience the daylight uh, if we're in a rural place, but that's how we rarely experience the daylight now because everything is so over-illuminated that the distinctions between night and day are, are much less kind of evident than they used to be. Really, night is the time when the lights come on. Yeah, and... Or, I... Yeah, the illuminate when illumination, artificial illumination, uh, uh, compensates for the loss of the daylight. Well, yeah, and that must have been a massive sort of obvious. Obviously, that was a massive development in the in the in the history of the of the light. So you have like uh, the electrification process, which marks the shift from sort of gas lighting to uh, so modern light. But that do we have a way to think about light, or do you have? Is this something that you've tried to articulate? Uh, is that light is something that can be contested? Is it, or, you know, is something that can be politicized even? Well, uh, you know, in many ways. But so to, to start with, we can think about how. What it must have been, it's very difficult for us to imagine what it was like when, when, because we live in such an illuminated world, what it was like when gaslighting came in even, that was so revolutionary. And people complained about it, about, about cities becoming too bright. Now we would consider them, uh, gaslit 
cities of that era to be excessively gloomy. And then when electric light came in, again, there were kind of complaints that things were glaring, that people couldn't see that there was this shine. And again, these, this, in comparison to what we have now, this would have been kind of very gloomy. Uh, but it, it, So it's always been contested. These different aesthetics have been contested. What we do know is that in the first, so until a, I would say the sort of second half of the, 90, of the 20th century, light was much more variegated and diverse than it subsequently became. And so for a long period, gas lights coexisted with electric lighting in many places. Uh, and there were still kind of areas of uh, quite substantial gloom and different styles of lighting. And what we've seen progressively throughout the 20th century is this standardisation. So the fact that street lights have to have a certain lumen, they have to be so far apart, uh, and that they should dis they should dispense a, a kind of quantitative kind of light on space. And so this is where you get the production of these kind of very homogenous nocturnal the, spaces. The mood becomes uniform. The mood becomes uniform, yes. And it's what's really interesting about this is if you talk to light designers, they really lament this as well. Obviously, light designers want to create interesting artistic, aesthetic designs. And the effects of these designs, of these of these interesting forms of lighting, are always kind of uh, diluted hugely by the presence of ambient light everywhere. Whereas, obviously, if they were positioned against a dark background, they would stand out in all their glory. But this can't happen because concerns about kind of safety uh, and the mobility of traffic are so paramount that we've forgotten how effective light can be in cities in, in, in many cases. In many ways, it's but in many ways it's kind of a necessity of modernity. We don't want to go to a situation where our our cities are not lit. I mean, urban. Or this is the case for urban environments. I think this is the case for rural environments as well. Like you know, you know, villages, small towns. They want they want uh, their street lighting at night. Yes, yeah, well. and right across the world as well. And you know, in the so-called sort of developing world, there's this kind of huge demand for light. Light is seen again as synonymous with modernity and development. It's kind of very important, and. Um, uh, it's it's just kind of interesting that as austerity kind of dawned a few years ago, uh, certain councils said, right, we're going to turn off every third street light uh, to produce less gloom, which made to produce less light, which made things very, very slightly gloomier than they had been before, but very little. And there was a host of complaints to councils saying, what is this? We're going back to the medi to the medieval era, to the dark ages. Yeah, again, light is an indicator of progress. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that really needs to be challenged in this kind of era of excessive illumination. It makes me think of a lot of the satellite photos <laughs> you see of... Um and then, I guess a reversal of the sort of the, the middle class people saying that, uh, you know, uh, a council house lice is lit up at Christmas is vulgar. We look at satellite photos of, say, somewhere like mm -hmm. North Korea, where Pyongyang is the only sort of ostensible mm. big area of light in, in the country at night, like on where the rest of the regions are are, are less lit or our, our, our light is redistributed yes. less 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 equally it's kind of interesting as well because it, yeah we we can see you know especially western europe japan and and north america have these giant blotches of 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 excessive light so there is that kind of massive inequality in and in sort of distribution uh, um of illumination but what's kind of also really interesting is that now what's happening is darkness is starting to be revalued. It's starting to be conceived as a positional good. So wealthy people, uh, as well as seeking kind of fresh air uh, um, and uh, places that are, that are relatively quiet in the countryside, also seek areas that aren't infested 
with this kind of over illumination. They seek darker places. We were we were talking prior to the interview about uh, sort of you know the idea of the international dark sky mm. reserves and stuff like that. But before I get to talking to you about that, I mean. What I want to talk to you about is, uh, I mean, just what you mentioned there is that in some sense, light is a, has a, you talk about equality, light, is, light indicates status of some kind. Mm-hmm. It does. It's, and it's, and, and, and good quality lighting as well. Again, to go back to that notion of taste. I mean, if you kind of look at a, I mean, if you go around any city now and you'll find a light store, you'll see the incredible range of interior lighting, for instance, that 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 uh, supplies you know the middle class with much more sophisticated lighting technologies, and and it's if you, it's very instructive if you look at the at the environments, the suburban environments, the middle class, which might not be particularly uh, lit brilliantly, but then if you compare that and you go to I don't know a, a sort of you know large modernist council estate or low cost housing estate the lighting is thoroughly abject like the the it, it's it's kind of very harsh lighting it, it it's functional rather than possessing any kind of sort of aesthetic qualities function is kind of all here uh, and so we can see these kind of huge comparisons between different areas of the city in terms of you know quality uh, of lighting and that's politicised. I mean, isn't that that old English saying, isn't it? Like daylight robbery. Yeah. Which is linked to, was linked to taxation, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, light's used in other malign ways. I mean, we shouldn't forget that also light is used in the service of power in the form of, you know, searchlights and um, floodlights, lights that kind of... Ide- uh, lights from helicopters that I attempt to discern the... the, the yes. Interrogation lights. Interrogation lights as you sit in there and you've got this bright light shining in your face in a kind of a very bare room. That's quite iconic, I mean, that image, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And so you can... Light being used to kind of frighten and intimidate. Lights used on the battlefield. Think of shock and awe in Iraq and the way in which vast quantities of light uh, hugely illuminated and blinded people in, in areas that was that had previously just been dark uh, and then absolutely transformed you know along with noise very bright lights to kind of intimidate um and we can think about also if you think about the the nightscape we can if we go into a city we can think about what's illuminated what stands out what selective elements of the nightscape are chosen, are selected to stand out, and which are neglected. And what we usually find out is we'll find that sort of iconic buildings, historic buildings, uh, are kind of certainly illuminated to stand out as markers of place. But also, if we go to downtown areas, we often see kind of, you know, corporate skyscrapers uh, illuminated all night, and perhaps with a kind of, a, you know, the corporate logo blasting out on the top. So there's a huge inequality here in terms of the way in which lighting is distributed. And given that we now, I mean, as I, as I, as I was mentioning to you before we we we, we did we recorded, like I, I'm I'm from County Kerry, I'm from mm-hmm. South West Kerry. That's an international dark sky reserve. Isn't that an interesting idea in itself that uh, light is something that is reserved now? That is something you know that in the city you cannot see the stars. No, that's, no, it's ab- that seems as a contaminant of some kind. Well, it does. I mean, and some people say that we should have, we should be able to see the stars in the city. So, so there are kind of a, there are sort of fundamentalists who want to get rid of uh, light almost entirely. Light uh, fundamentalists, okay. <laughs> they, they 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 seek dark skies everywhere, and, but of course there is an increasing number of these places, dark sky parks, and the sort of prime movers uh, for the establishment of these dark sky parks initially were astronomers who were finding that they could go nowhere 
uh, in places like the UK, very over-illuminated uh, aisle, they could go nowhere to gaze upon the stars. And so there's quite a number now in the UK. There's like there's like five or six, and these two in Ireland, Mayo Dark Sky Park and Kerry. So yeah, so so these dark sky parks and and it is, they do they truly do afford dark sky. So lights are shielded in local villages. Any intrusive lighting is marginalised, and this does mean that you you know there's a scale, isn't there? There's a Bortle scale, I think, from one to ten. Uh, and some of these areas, they they will meet uh, th- three and um, even two in the United Kingdom, which seems extraordinary. You have to go to to get to one. You have to go to the Atacama Desert in Chile, I think. But these are really profoundly dark areas. And since then, um, there's been a wider engagement in those dark spaces by naturalists, you know, who like to record what uh, things sound like by people who like to go walking, people who like walking in the dark for the exper- a different kind of experience of landscape and space by artists who kind of are producing Galloway Docks uh, Sky Park. They have an annual uh, arts festival in which people respond to the lack of light. So they've kind, they're kind of expanding in many ways. Uh, it's not, in, in other words, uh, these dark sky parks are not only the sort of province of astronomers any longer, but of a whole range of people who are seeking darkness away from the, the over-illuminated cities that they inhabit. And so darkness is becoming reappraised as a quality, not only in dark sky parks, but in a whole host of attractions in which darkness is the kind of preeminent quality that 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 uh, people wish to experience in terms of the environmental nature of the bit like i mean you mentioned sort of your fondness for the blackpool immu- uh, mm. illuminations excuse me is there an environmental dimension to that is there environmental questions to that i mean it's going to cost a lot of energy to uh, to, to 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 light up something that is done for decoration whereas uh, i'm the son of an electrician and he would probably see himself as essential to modernity because he can bring light to families, mm-hmm. he can bring light to farmers and outhouses and stuff like that. So there's a sort of uh, tension between light as an element of progress or mm-hmm. light as something that can be, as you've been saying, something quite regressive. What, how would you how would you think about sort of the environmental nature of light, that the idea that, you know, something like Blackpool is, that's going to cost, take a lot of energy. That's probably got a carbon footprint, as they say. It is, it is, but less carbon footprint now than it had because they've nearly all been replaced with LEDs now. So they actually have got, they have got greener. So, you know, they've been very aware of that. And, and in many cases, a lot of uh, places um, are, are replacing their lights with LEDs. It's kind of, this rollout has, has, has taken place progressively over the last sort of 10 years and will continue to do so, especially as the, as the technology of LEDs become better and even more sort of sustainable. Uh, but I think what's important is that, that yes, something like a festival like Blackpool certainly does. Uh, some people might say it squanders a lot of electricity, but this is as nothing to the sort of downtown areas where, and the, and also if you think, where, you know, where, where uh, tow, um, corporate, sort of tower blocks keep the lights on all night where the central roads are excessively um, uh, illuminated by by adverts and then think about the roadways where you know any whether virtually all motorways now are kind of brightly illuminated think about the expenditure there so in in some ways i think we what i would all what i would like to see is that light we do need to acknowledge the capacity of light to provide pleasure to in, to as i said to kind of enchant the night to to provide 
to, to, to give us all sorts of kind of ideas, artistic ideas as well, to provide a medley of different kind of aesthetic experiences at night. So I think light has this incredible capacity to be able to do that, to transform our experience of the everyday nocturnal world. Uh, so I wouldn't want to be a kind of purist about it, and I would rather target the sort of much more mundane uh, over-expenditure of light. I think that's kind of my, my position in terms of, in terms of, and and of course, like proportionally, that's by far the most important thing to consider. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. So, uh, so Britain, uh, the future of Britain in terms of light, as you, using your own words, is Britain moving from becoming the sceptered isle to becoming the overlit isle? I think it's very overlit. I think it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult to for for two reasons. First of all, as we've already said, uh, lighting signifies modernity and progress. People are less sort of hung up on progress these days, but nevertheless, they've been so habituated, so attuned to a kind of a, a, a very brightly lit urban environment, at least, that they're very. it's very difficult to kind of change attitudes, to make them see the world otherwise, to make them appreciate maybe that a more gloomy uh, urban environment might be might be equally valid as a sort of aesthetic experience. But I think the most important thing here, uh, the biggest um, barrier to... to um, reducing the amount of light is concerns about safety um and this is a much more fraught debate and and in in fact he's gone mad yeah well it i think what it is is that it, that people have that it's it's actually if you kind of read the academic literature it the jury is out on whether more light brings greater safety what it definitely does is it brings a perception of greater safety but in fact uh, some people argue that, that that more light is inimical to safety. So, for instance, it's fairly obvious that if you're walking down a brightly lit seat, uh, street, people can identify who you are, what your gender is, what your age is, what you look like. They can see you. If you're a dark, if it's in a dark, gloomy street, sets. they can yeah, they can identify if you're a man or a woman. But you know, at the most basic uh, level, or a young woman. Uh, also, what what brightly lit streets do is they dis- they uh, obviate the ability to see what lies either side of that street. The eyes can be, as I've said, people are quite good at seeing in the dark, but if everything's excessively bright, it's impossible then to to reattune your eyes to see what lies in the dark either side. So you can't perceive, you just can't perceive danger at all. You can't see it, whereas if you're attuned to danger, if you can see what's around you better, then you might be able to kind of avoid danger. So there's kind of lots of ways in which lighting might be improved. I'm not saying no lighting, but lights in the floor perhaps, you know, lights on the pavement that allow you to see where you're going, but also allow you to discern uh, what's around you. Or the star path, where light shines on a, on a path, a tarmac path uh, throughout the day, which is charged with kind of solar uh, uh, particles, uh, and then at night it glows. So there's no light there. There's no artificial light there, but the but the but the luminosity of the path allows you to see where you're going, that and is, also that is brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. It's yeah, brilliant. It's a great idea. Great idea. And I think that's what's really interesting about your work, Tim. That it's um, you're just pointing out that we can think about light in many different ways, mm. which sort of combats the uh, the forgetting about light, which is like all humans do. I mean. Mm-hmm. I was my, just my wife alone was somebody who sort of introduced me to sort of mood lighting in a room like that. You know, I was always happy with the sort of the sort of that brutal over, overhead strip lights <laughs> and stuff like that. But it's like uh, now it's a, life is a lot better that I listen to her. <laughs> and you hadn't thought about it. You hadn't noticed it before. But again, it's becoming attuned. Mm-hmm. It's about becoming attuned and paying attention to things that we that we take for granted. 
Now, the next, uh, my, my final question is briefly that if you want to sort of uh, maybe sort of talk about your current research, you've moved to from uh, two very elemental things. You move from light to stone. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe could you just briefly... Yes, I can. I can say a little bit about stone. And, and there's many reasons that I'm kind of fascinated about stone. If we think about stone, it's been a constant companion of kind of human endeavor at least uh, as far as the stone age of course and so when stone was the most important material in terms of kind of making tools and houses and so forth and it's remained a kind of an important uh, material partly because it's hard uh, uh, partly because it's durable um uh, and of course it's been supplemented uh, progressively by a greater range of materialities so you know bronze metal plastic you know we could go on um and so but stone still kind of persists as what's interesting about it because it lasts for such a long time in, in relation to human time anyway uh that it endures and so if you think about the kind of great monuments the ancient monuments they're all made of stone stonehenge uh you know the ancient pyramids uh zimbabwe well great new zimbabwe grange. Have to plug new, grange Ireland, yeah. <laughs> new grange not forgetting new grange <laughs> and <laughs> you know standing stones all these kind of neolithic elements uh, and, and right up to the present day, kind of statues and, and commemorations and shrines are made out of stone. So they kind of persist as a sort of commemorative element in the built environment. And also they're very interesting, I guess, too, because they're, they're, they're spaces which uh, demonstrate the intersection between, well, the organisation of stone and light. I mean, a lot of these are astronomical. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Stone has this kind of symbolic use because it endures. It's, it's, it continues to be used in commemoration. Simply think of the gravestone the, the more, at a more mundane level that, that many people still use to mark uh, where their body's buried for relatives. Uh, stone is something that's going to last for, for longer than, than other stuff. <clears throat> but there's other interesting things about stone as well. So one of the things I'm interested in is the way in which places... Are, are always assembled from bits of elsewhere. And so what's inter the, one of the ways in which we can look at that is through looking at the way in which stone is accumulated by places. And that stone, obviously, very uh, early on, if we look at any kind of medieval village, we can guarantee that there'll be a local quarry. Uh, and that local quarry may have been of good stone or of bad stone, but anyway, that's all they had to build this, their houses with. Uh, and so that persists. Uh, and then, of course, as... Um, as the Industrial Revolution proceeds, uh, uh, canals, railways, later roads get opened up. Stone can be brought in to, from a different range of places. And so places increasingly become more complex composites of different bits of elsewhere. And their, their relationships with different places, or with other places, both uh, becomes more complex, becomes more varied, and it also uh, extends out over much greater scales. And now uh, to global scales. Light and stone fundamentals. Tim Eden, sir, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.